Heavenly Father, we just um, send to you, Lord, just to thank you for this wonderful uh, morning we've had so far. Uh, to be able to come and uh, listen to your word and uh, to praise and worship you, Lord. Father, we just send to you, Lord, that you may be with our brother today, Lord, as uh, he gets to speak from your word, Lord, that you may uh, be in his heart, Lord, give him the words of wisdom, Lord, to share with us the knowledge and understanding he has from your word to lead and guide us during our lives. Uh, as we live on. Father, we just uh, pray that you may continue with us, Lord, that you may open our hearts and our minds, that we may uh, listen and learn and understand more from your word, Lord. We ask all these things in your name, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. We're carrying on in our study of the, the book of Ephesians. So um, we're going to be looking at um, Ephesians chapter 2. And as already has been mentioned, they're, they're really well-known verses and something that you probably know very well. So it's, um, it's going to be a, a good subject, I think. And um, Gary last week was gracious enough, thank you, Gary, to not um, take the first part of the thunder because I'm only dealing with three verses. So Gary had seven, and this week I've got three. So I think it's only fair that next week I give Robbie one. <laughs> um, but he's got the rest, he stakes over from verse 11 and he'll carry on through the chapter. So it's, um, yeah, it's a great thing. But these verses are amazing. Just three small chapters. And Anne-Marie's done a great job also in the, in the Sunday service. Um, so now I'm back down to two and a half <laughs> after the <laughs> things that have been shared. But it's a, there's so much in this. So it's a, it's a fantastic thing that we have. And if you've got your Bibles, if you turn with me there, but probably more than that, you've already got them in your heart. They're probably already in your mind. It's a verses that we often have, and it's verses that you probably already know. And it just simply says this, For by grace you are saved, through faith, and that not of a gift, oh sorry, by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm sure you know, especially the first part, off by heart. Um, and the verses that are used often in the relationship to the gospel story, they go along and they parallel the things of, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whoever you are, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. But also it's written, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which you have received, wherein you stand, by which you are saved. If you keep in memory that which I've delivered unto you, for I delivered unto you first of all that which also I have received, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. And it's also written that if we confess with our mouths Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that's some of the verses that we often use in regards to this, the story of the gospel. And it's something that we, we know quite well. But what I would like to do today 
is compare some of these things, and is there a parallel we have, but it becomes even more vibrant and it becomes more vivid if we can see the contrast for where these verses have come from. And just like in the book of Ephesians where we have um, theology and then we have the application of that, we find the same thing in the book of Romans where we have theology and then we have the application. And in Romans, that's what I'd like to parallel now is the book of Romans. And if we were starting in this verse for the book of Romans, we'd be starting in chapter 4. Because chapter 4 talks about faith and about how we come to faith. And then it talks about in chapter 5 that we're justified. And then it talks about in chapter 6 through 8, it says that we're sanctified. And he says, first of all, look, you never have to sin again. And then in chapter 7, it talks about if you try not to sin by your own strength, you will sin. And then in chapter 8, he says that you will never have to sin again because of the Holy Spirit. That's the amazing thing that we have in, in Romans. But today we're starting in chapter 4. But to contrast that, I want to look at the first three chapters of the book of Romans because that's going to set up the background so that we can see where these verses and where they have so much impact. And in Romans chapter 1, just we're talking about these, it names three groups of people that are in this world and humanity. And the first group in Romans chapter 1, it talks about those that are like barbaric, those that are they're totally, you can see their sin, and it names some of those sins that are in there. And it says that they are without God, they're backbiters, they're haters of God, they're evil, they, they do everything that is against God, and they love those things, and they love those that do them. And that's the first group that Romans chapter 1 will deal with, the people that are barbaric and that they, they love sin, and it's clear, and they're murderers, and it carries on with the list. And then it comes to the second group. And I would place New Zealand in the second group. It's those that are not the uncultured, not the barbaric, but those that have education and supposedly sophisticated. And it says to that group, he says, Therefore, who are you, O man? You are inexcusable, O man, that you will think that you will escape the wrath of God also. And he names the second group as those that would see the first group as barbaric and that they would never do the sins, they would never murder, they would never do those kinds of things. But he says to this group also that you likewise are under the judgment and the wrath of God because we do some of the same sins that they do. And then thirdly, he compares them with another group, a group that is taken out of the Gentiles, a group that is the Jewish people, and he removes them from that group and he says, what about the third group, the Jewish people, being separated by God himself for his purposes and for his goodwill. What about this group? Surely this group is a, a group that would follow God. But out of all of that, he concludes in Romans chapter 3 with these verses. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 9, he says this, What then? Are we better than they? That's the Jewish people. Are they better than the uncultured Gentiles and the cultured Gentiles? Are we better than they, he says, not at all, for we previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Now I want you to notice the, the singularity of these verses and what it's saying. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seek after God. They have all turned aside, and together they have become unprofitable. There is none that does good, 
No, not so much as one. Do you notice the singularity of it? None righteous, not one, none that understands, none that seek after God, all have turned aside, together become unprofitable, none that does good, no, not so much as one. That's the reality of Romans chapter 3. That no matter who you are, whether you're a sinner that has just continued in sin and loves sin, whether you think you're more educated and sophisticated than the uncultured, or whether you're Jewish and you've been separated by God himself for his purposes, that we are all under sin. And that's the backdrop by which we have Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Also in Romans chapter 1 it says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Have you ever thought of this? That creation itself is not enough to save you, but creation itself, according to this verse, is enough to separate you from the love of God. It's enough to send you to hell. Creation itself is enough that what he says here, that they are without excuse. No one has an excuse when it comes to God. And even creation itself is enough to condemn you. It won't save you, but it will condemn you. And there's certain things that God's given to all mankind. Whether we're believers or unbelievers, God's given us certain things. The first one is creation. We have that and we've just read that. A second thing that God has given to all mankind is your conscience. You can do with your conscience as you wish. You might sear it, you might turn it around, you might totally reject it, but all mankind is given that. And the third thing that all mankind is given is the way that God does providence, the way in which God works circumstances and events in our lives. But those things are common to everybody, all humankind, whether we are whether we're Jewish, whether we're not, whether we're believers, whether we're unbelievers, those things are common to us all. And in all that, he says this in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, something that's just, I guess, more of a hypothetical question, but what if someone could keep the whole law and do the things of the law? Look at what this verse says, for all have sinned, and come short. What's the mark? The glory of God, not just fulfilling commandments and doing things that God tells us to do, but the actual mark is far higher, and that is to, to be and to make the mark of coming short of the glory of God. And that's why we are so, in our humanity and who we are, we are so blackened by what we have in the way of sin. So if you remember from last week, if we can jump on the PowerPoint, Jonathan, that would be fantastic. We were given an, an illustration, so we'll, and there it is there. There's a, a black diamond, and I thought I'd take this one because you could see the, um, the diamond that is in Tanya's wedding ring. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> if only that was <laughs> the case. This, this diamond is called the Cullingham Diamond, and it is the largest rough gem-quality diamond ever found. And it's shaped in the form of a pear. It weighs 530... 0.2 carats, and it measures 53 mils, so not that big, 53 mils by 44 and by 29, and it has 76 facets on it. The Cullingham one is the largest of nine stones cut from the original 3,106 carat Cullingham diamond, 
and it is also known as the Star of Africa. The diamond has a perfect white colour or a flawless D colour, and its value goes up to almost $4 million, and that's the reason why Tanya doesn't have that on her finger. <laughs> but the, the contrast is this. That, that diamond that is there, as Gary was saying, is like the message of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, in comparison to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. And you know what the truth of the matter is? We are that background. That is us. There is none righteous. There is, is such a contrast between the, the gospel and who we are as, as humans that they are so opposed. There is such a contrast there. But the amazing thing is that we have something called this, this good news. And what is it? If I can... And it says this. In contrast to the black, it says, for by grace we have been saved. You have been saved. And you know, grace, we, we often, because it's a verse, a, a word that we, we know and um, are comfortable with, quite often we'll term it as being undeserved favour. And it is, it absolutely is. Grace is undeserved favour. Um, but something that I found just interesting um, when I was looking at it and um, looking at it in, in Hebrew was the word for grace is, is there. It's those two consonants there. Um, but the, the amazing thing about this word in, in Hebrew is that in Hebrew, all of the words come from a root. They all come from a root word. And this is not the root. It's not the, the, the root of where grace comes from. It's a, so what I'm trying to explain is that in Hebrew, you have three consonants. And what you'll do with those three consonants is you'll put letters in between the consonants or around them, and they will, they'll mean different things. But what, what happens is that when you get the root word, um, when you look at it, even if you see another word, but it's got those three consonants in them, you know, even though you've never seen that word before, it has something to do with this root. That's how Hebrew works. It's a very logical language. So that everything that it sort of gets all packed in together. Well, guess what the root word of grace is? It comes from a word. And the next one, this is the root of where we get the, um, grace from. And it's mercy. And for me, it's just an interesting way to, to have a look at what this means. So mercy is God not punishing us for the sins in which we deserve. That's mercy. But from that, if we just, an interesting way of looking at it is that God not punishing us for the sins that we deserve, he has taken away something from that root, and that's the punishment. The sins are still there, but not the punishment and out of that, we have this amazing word, grace. Undeserved favor, although we are still sinners. But the word punishment has come off that, that first root, which was put onto the Lord Jesus. So that's a, an amazing way to, just something to look at. So we go next into the, the verse itself, and it says this, which you know. And again, it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now, I've got to come up as well and say that there is, um, there is a bit of controversy over this, this verse. And um, it's, it's been brought up previously. And it's this whole idea of this debate about what, what does that word that mean that's in the scriptures there? So I'm going to read it two ways so that you can have a look at it and see what you think. The first way is this. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that salvation is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. That's the first way. There is also another way that um, this verse is um, used, and it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith is not from yourselves, it is the gift from God. The real question here is, what is the gift that's been talked about here? Is it salvation or is it your faith? What's the, the thing that's given as the gift? And that's where this whole debate, and we're not going to go through that too much, but just to, to open it up a little bit and say that that's the whole idea of, is it, well, people that would hold the second idea about it being faith is this idea that it's um, your faith that you have was not given, was actually given to you to make the um, acceptance of the gospel. So for them, it's like this. And this is more on the strict or the hyper-Calvinist position, although other people also hold to this view, and it goes like this. That is that God regenerated you. He saved you first so that then you would have the faith to believe the gospel and receive the grace. That is that particular view. And what I'd like to just read to you is just someone that I've really enjoyed um, and that's his commentary on this, and he's both a Greek and Hebrew scholar. And he says, so is faith the gift? Is that what it's talking about here? And he says this, faith, however, to use that, it is impossible interpretation based upon the Greek text. And there is a basic principle in Greek grammar which teaches this, a masculine modifies a masculine, a feminine modifies a feminine, and a neuter modifies a neuter. And the word faith here is in the feminine. It is the Greek feminine noun. So the word that cannot go back to the word faith. Rather, it goes back to salvation. The point is that the whole salvation package is the gift. So the thing is, it's not faith that it's talking about here. It's actually talking about salvation. And to, to make that a bit more clearer, if we look at some of the other verses that deal with um with this idea of the gift, what is the gift? In John chapter 4, verse 10, we're told the gift is eternal life. That's what the gift is. In Acts chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, and, verse, and chapter 11, we're told that the gift of God is the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, it says that the Messiah is the gift. And in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we're told that eternal life is the gift. And that's the thing. With all these other verses, when it talks about the gift and salvation, you'll never see that it's faith that is the gift. Faith is not the gift. Faith is the, the gift is salvation. And however, on the other side, we know that God is, is absolutely sovereign that God has got all things. We know that we can all rest tonight knowing that even if God was to take our lives, that his plan and his purposes wouldn't be taken away. We know that, that he's sovereign. And that's the, the whole argument and the debate between the side. And the real, the real question is, how much does God's, is God's sovereignty affected by the free will that we have? But I would like to just point a position now that the faith that we have it's those things together. It's by grace you are saved, but it's through faith, the acceptance of what he's done for us. I'm just going to let a clip run that you'll, you'll see, and they can just run in the background. 
And it's just to think about this piece of clay in which we are. We are something that is a molded piece and that God is working on in the way of our relationship to who he is. And on one side, yes, it's faith. It's all about faith. But on the other side, it is also that God is absolutely sovereign and that he determines the things that are going on in our lives. And something that's always confused me with the gospel is this. Why did God not put in, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? You know, something that's always confused me is, the, is this idea of why did God leave it so late until the book of Isaiah to tell us that a Messiah would have to come and die for our sins? We knew that there was all the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament and the, the sacrifices and the pictures, but Isaiah is the first time that we hear that the Messiah would actually die for our sins. And the other thing that's always confused me with the gospel is when Jesus came to this earth, why, when he was with his disciples, didn't he take them from the beginning, start going through the Old Testament scriptures and start showing them that he was the Messiah and that he was the one to come and die for their sins? It's not until after his resurrection that he comes back and he takes them through these, these amazing verses. And it's something that's always troubled me. But then if you realize that whether it's in the Old Testament or whether it's in the New Testament, it has always been the same method by which you are saved. It has always been grace through faith. It's just that the content of what they understood in the Old Testament is not the same as the content which has been revealed in the New Testament. And the thing that I've really appreciated with this whole idea and the concept of the gospel was that, you know, we as believers, we have the answer. We know what it is, those verses that we've been quoting. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, we, we know what the answer is. The real question is not really, it's, we know that answer, but it's how do we do the delivery of the mechanism to be able to share with people with what that is. What I mean by that is when it comes to the gospel, Quite often it's the, we think of it, all we've got to do is just tell them that Jesus died for their sins. And absolutely that is the gospel. We need to tell them that Jesus died for them, that he rose again and he, and he lives. But I would like to challenge you with something else when it comes to regards to the gospel. And that is, what is the means by which you're delivering that message? What is the means by which that message is getting out from what it is inside to those that are around us. And as you can see, the guy that's designing it, in Romans chapter, uh, the next verse, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 2, and verse 8, carrying on, it says that faith is not of works, lest anyone should boast. But here's the delivery mechanism. The delivery mechanism is found in this verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? for good works. We are the clay which the potter is molding for us to be the ones to go out to this world and share the message of the good news of what he has done for us. And just like the potter has the power over the, the clay to make the vessel to um, be something that's most like amazing or something that's just a lump of clay, for us as believers, God has chosen us and he has, he has picked us to do something. And it's not just for our own comfort, just not for the point that we would come and we would say, thank you, Lord, for, 
for dying on that cross. Absolutely, that's true. It's something that we we recognise, and it's something that um, is absolutely what God has done for us. But what I'm trying to say is that with this gospel, He is wanting us as those vessels to go out for good works for Him. My real challenge to us is at Hukunui is this, is are we prepared to be the vessel that God has already prepared beforehand to do his good works? That's what this verse says. You have been prepared beforehand. The blueprint is already upon your lives. He has already marked you out for a certain specific purpose. You are a certain piece of clay that God has already marked out, and he has got you there so that you would do something with that. The challenge really is, are you doing the good works in which God has already called you to do? Are you going out and doing the work that God has already prepared on your life? And has he got you marked for amazing things? So on this whole side of free will, I just wanted to mention this as well, that I think in regards to some of this stuff, the verse that's really good to remember is 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2. And it says this in 1 Peter 1. It says that elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. I think that both of these things absolutely work together. That is, that when it comes to God's... um, election and pre-calling of you as us as believers, that is also in accordance with his foreknowledge. It's not in spite of and it's not in addition to, but that it all works together. And if you, you struggle with this whole concept, I mean, to tell you the truth, it's something that I've been going through for the last two months is who is God in his character and in his person and who he is? Um, and it's just an, an amazing thing. But there is also something else, and that is in um, what I'll do is just yeah, show that last slide if I can. And that is sometimes what we think about ourselves and who we are. You know, sometimes when we come to the gospel, it, it, and even here on Sunday morning, we'll come here and we will thank God so much for what he has done for us. We'll thank him for the, the death and the resurrection And quite often it's pulled into here and we say, Lord, we we recognize that what you've done for us and we we love you and it all comes into us and our response to what he's done. And I'm not trying to take away from that at all. That is absolutely so important and something that we have to do. But I would like to show you something else and that is that it's not just about the way in which we have received the gospel and what he's done for us but he has made you something special. He has made you a certain piece of clay. And quite often as believers, we look like this person. We're grumpy, we've taken what God's come, we come each Sunday morning with a heart of thanks and a real true heart for thanks for what the Lord has done. And we thank him for what, how he's paid that price. But we come with it all being about me about what God has done for me. And that is so much the point, that it is about what God has done for us. But sometimes we we see things a little bit different, and I just want to flip this one around. 
That is so much of what the gospel really is. And that is that it is about what God has done in undeserved favor by saving and by what he's done on the cross. But that from there, we have been transformed 180 degrees around so that we should now bear the, the gem that has come into us and we should use those good works which God has already prepared for us. He's got something for you specific. He's got a certain work for you, something that is just for you, that piece of clay that has been presented, and that's who you are. God has prepared something way before and it's sitting there right for you to, to take hold of. And that's the challenge that I'd really like to leave more than anything else is are you becoming the piece of clay that God has already presented and is getting ready for you to become? I know that in, in Hokanui we, um, we, we have this amazing ability to to come and to worship and to, to thank God, what would it be look like if we were all just going out and charging because of the peace that he has made and be presented to other people in that way as well? I think that God, if we could look at the piece of clay of what, who you are and that God has transformed you, spun you absolutely upside down, that if we could find what that is, that position that God has got for you, and run with what he's made you for, that you will find that you have a position and a place that is beyond your wildest imagination. And I've got to look at myself totally when it comes to this and think, what is it that God has got for me? What is the place and the position that he has set up? And am I doing it? And to be totally honest with you all, I'm not doing the thing in which God has called me to do. And that's the reality, is that God has called us, and you'll know what it is that, that, that you are, is that piece of clay has been called to do. And that's the challenge for me, is what would it look like if I actually continue in or do the blueprint that God has got for us? Let's just, um, yeah, just going to close in prayer. Father, I just yeah, come before you, Lord, and... Yeah, thank you for this, um, this opportunity, Lord, just to, to stand before you and to know that you have everything, Lord, in your hands. But, Lord, in that and that salvation and that grace in which you've given us, Lord, you did something um, amazing, Lord, in that you saved us. But you have saved us for a purpose, Lord. And, Lord, I pray that that purpose that you have saved us for and that piece of vessel that you're turning us into, Lord, that we would be able to, to see what that is. And Lord, that we would not only see it, but that we would obey it and do that, Lord. And Father, I confess before you that the peace that you have got for me and the place that you have got, Lord, I know that I'm not doing to the extent of which you have called. And Lord, I just pray for those that are at Hukunui and those that are, are saved and know that we're saved, Lord, that you would reveal to them too the things in which you have got for them as the blueprint. And Lord, help to challenge us all, we pray, that we would be able to just follow, Lord, the design which you have already pre-planned for us and that we would go and follow those things. So Lord, we just yeah, give you thanks and 
We just commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.